Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. July the 22nd. 1982, late afternoon. A bus pulls up on the quays of the River Liffey, about a mile from Dublin city centre, and a man hops off. There's something about the man that seems not right, a little odd. It's a hot summer's day with clear skies and strong sunshine. Yet, he is wearing a heavy tweed jacket, a cravat and a tweed fisherman's cap pulled low over his forehead. He is tanned and bearded, carrying a blue hold-all bag in one hand and a long object, tightly wrapped in polythene, in the other hand. He stops at a shop to buy an orange and a bottle of water and then walks up towards the Phoenix Park. At 1,700 acres, it is twice the size of Central Park, and is the largest enclosed park in Europe. It is the summer of 1982. The weather has been unseasonably good, with weeks of hot temperatures and little rain. In many parts of the country, it's been hotter than Hong Kong or Honolulu. The highest temperatures tomorrow, as today, as yesterday and the day before, and certainly still very hot indeed down in the south. And that's it. A totally unjustified attempt was made to put the blame for business scandals onto the government when clearly there was no ministerial involvement of any kind. That is the distinctive nasal voice of Charles J. Hawhey, then Prime Minister or Taoiseach. Later, he will become a central figure in this narrative. But for now, it's the man in the tweed fisherman's hat. He is about to shatter the taciturn nature of that summer's day and also shake the Irish government, led by Charles J. Hawhey, to its very foundations. He will commit two murders that will lead to the biggest murder hunt in the history of the state and will bring Gordy, literally, to the doorstep of a senior figure in Hawhey's cabinet. By the time it subsides, the Attorney General, the state's top law officer, will have resigned and Charles J. Hawhey will be hanging on to power by a thread. The only way to describe it is through the words expressed by Charles J. Hawhey himself. As I say, a grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and unbelievable mischance. 
are shortened to its infamous acronym, GUBU. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called GUBU. GUBU. Famous words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a goo situation and hockey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kind of conspiracies during that 81, 82. It was crazy stuff a I minute. Mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two. I'm Harry McGee of the Irish Times and this is Goo a seven-part series looking at one of the most infamous murder cases in Ireland and how it almost toppled the government of Charles J. Hockey. The name of the central protagonist is Malcolm MacArthur, with his bow ties, cravats, silk handkerchiefs and cultured accent MacArthur looked like he swan straight out of an Agatha Christie novel. A gentleman, right down to his manicured fingertips. Malcolm MacArthur was so strikingly different. He wore a dicky bow in Dublin in the 80s. You know, he was extraordinary. Nice tan, good head of wavy hair. Not your typical criminal that you would be chasing normally. MacArthur always portrayed himself as being an academic. That was another Walter Mitty. There's an element of fantasy to his entire life. There, the comparisons with the Christie whodunit ends. There were no neat murders, no whiff of strychnine, or any sporting denouement. Instead, there was violence that was brutal, frenzied, and gruesome. And two murders that shocked a nation. It is, to quote one commentator, the election that no one wanted, but the country needed. The political situation is important because politics played a major part in these macabre murders. They occurred during a period of huge political turmoil and churn. In Ireland, there would be three changes of government in the space of 18 months. The backdrop was economic recession and high unemployment. We interrupt our regular programme schedule to bring you the following special report from ABC News Washington. Here is Ted Koppel. Bobby Sands is dead. The 27-year-old member of the Irish... A hundred miles to the north, ten prisoners died the previous year in a divisive hunger strike. And in 1982, the violent horror known as the Troubles is continuing. Its unavoidable impact is seeping into the politics of the South. 81, 82, things were very unstable. This is Bertie Ahern former Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland. Back in 1982, he was Chief Whip in the government of Charles J. Hawhey. The national debt was growing, you know, the economy was, was weak, unemployment was high, bombs in the, in the Republic, Bobby Sands' debt. What Malcolm MacArthur did that day in July would determine everything else that followed. It would end with a young woman, Bridie Gargan, being brutally attacked and dying from her injuries four days later. Bridie Gargan, um, cold medal, a winning nurse in her finals, working out of St. James's Hospital, on her way home to Rathoth, a farming family, and uh, she parked her car at the back entrance to the American Embassy in the Phoenix Park, and she was sunbathing there. And you can imagine the situation with people walking, people jogging, Families sitting in the sunshine. That's Tony Hickey, 
During his career as a policeman, he would eventually become second in command of Ungor the Shiokono. Back in 1982, he was a detective sergeant with the murder squad and played a central role in every aspect of this case. Uh, Tony Hickey from um, Leheran Killarney, County Kerry. And at 19 years of age, I joined the Garda Shikana in 1965. And I was assigned to the D District in North City, Dublin. In those years through the 70s, the highest incidence of armed robberies in the country were in the D District. Bank robberies, post office robberies, fairly regular occurrences. To my amazement, I had a, discovered I had a facility for dealing with criminals on the street and detecting crime. The perpetrators were some ordinary criminals who learned from what we call the subversives. The main groups operating were the Irish Republican Socialist Party, later on the Provisional IRA. Then uh, I joined the murder squad in 1980. Prior to that, there had been in Ireland possibly one murder every month. There were maybe 10 or 12 a year. The murder case that would dominate Hickey's summer and that of over 50 detectives began on that day in July when Malcolm MacArthur walked into the Phoenix Park. Clearly dressed to disguise his appearance, he wore a beard, a heavy jacket and a fisherman's hat. He followed a grassy jogger's path that runs parallel to the main road that dissects the park. It's a popular and well-trodden route, shaded by an avenue of large beech and chestnut trees. I've run along that path myself countless times over the years. The man passed the tall obelisk of the Wellington Monument that commemorates Arthur Wellesley, Lord Wellington, who defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo. He then passed the President's residence, the achingly beautiful Orison Uchtheron, the porticos of which were, reputedly, the inspiration for the White House. He finally stopped near the grounds of another sumptuous mansion, Deerfield. That white building is the official residence of the US ambassador in Ireland. He had walked almost three kilometres. It had taken 32 minutes in 22 degrees heat. The Phoenix Park is enormous and on this summer's day looked like a safari plain, its grasslands extending long into the distance. Among the thousands there that day, a small number of people noticed this strangely dressed man, particularly when he stopped at a monument depicting an eagle near the centre of the park. Here he's overdressed, there's a heatwave, he's going up the main road, he's at the Eagle Monument. When he sat there for a while, we had witnesses said that he sat at the Eagle Monument for a while, staring around the place. He approached a car, there was a lady with her children, they were all uh, lying in the grass and they said it was tall, it was like hay at the time in parts of the park. And uh, she sat up and she saw this guy crawling towards her and uh, she made some sound and her husband then set up and he moved on. The woman's apprehension about the man was fully justified. MacArthur carried a blue hold-all bag in one hand. Inside was a lump hammer and also an imitation firearm, which he had fashioned out of a pistol crossbow. In the other hand, he carried a mysterious four-foot-long object, tightly wrapped in plastic. A little further along, at the back of the American ambassador's residence, he noticed a young woman sunbathing on the grass beside a Renault 5 car. Her name was Bridie Gargan. She was 27 years of age and had a personality that was as sunny as that summer's day. She was one of a family of 11 children from a farm near Dunshockland in County Meath. Bridie was a nurse who worked in the nearby St James's Hospital. And you can imagine the situation. 
people walking, people jogging, with hundreds, if not thousands, of commuters. Regardless of that, the only man was Paddy Burton, who saw the car, and he saw a guy, a man, dressed inappropriately. And funny the thing, to where, where she was attacked and all, the tree died in about two years after. It wasn't that strange. So you did a little lodge in the park then, Paddy, you had? Yeah, I had a lodge in the, in the embassy, inside in there. Oh, that's very nice, yeah. Oh, right here. There you oh, go. where is it? Here you are. Watch the bike now. Down here. Now, oh, that's grand there now. Now, pull down here and you can move. Straight down now. That's where I live. That's where I used to live there. The little there yeah. Pull in here if you like now. Pull in this as far as we would be going. Do that, that'll do grand. Now I lived in there for I went thirty two or three years in it. That was my house there. This is Paddy Byrne, who was a gardener who worked on the grounds of the US ambassador's residence. He himself lived in a cottage there. Paddy is now 84 years of age and long retired. We tracked him down to his new home in Cabra and he brought us down to the Phoenix Park to show where he lived and where the awful incident occurred that day. We stand on the joggers path near where Bridie Gargan's little Renault 5 was parked. And what were you doing that particular day? See that wood there? And we were at the side there cleaning the edges going along it. And it came five, so I decided I'd walk back up here to the house. And still, it's over there now somewhere, I noticed the car and the car in it. But didn't bother, kept walking up along slowly until I seen him coming down. And then he, he went up along, sneaking a kind of up to where the car was parked. Then he got in behind a tree, straight like that, and looking around. Just decided, this fella's up to something. And he gets the tree, standing looking, he'd go and then he'd look again. And I said, just decided, this fella's up to something. Oh, it was a hot, now this was a hot day, now, a real hot day it was. What happened next shocked Paddy. It happened with such speed and aggression that he could not quite believe what he was seeing. Just as soon as he got near, he just got her and got her into the car, all like within minutes, seconds, into the car. And then I could see him, and he, and he hit her on the head with his fist like that. Just like, this is not tricking and he belted in her light and he had her held, held and he doing this. That's what you could actually, you could actually see I see him, way. yeah, I could see the way the sun caught it. I could see her hair and all coming up. And I just like, that's not As soon as he saw the man hitting the woman in the car around the head, Paddy jumped over the wall of Deerfield and sprinted to the jogger's path, a distance of about 50 metres. And I tore across here. And of course, again, I got here with over bread, coming to where the car was. It just said, what the fuck is going on here? Something like that. Something's going on here. Just there he was, and he sitting sideways in the back seat. He had a paper over around, and she in kind of under the paper. She couldn't see her. But it wasn't his fist. He had a lump hammer in his hand, and I, I didn't see it until I got near him. He was hitting her with a lump hammer. And he just jumped out of the car and got the gun and it pointed at me like that. If you don't get the fuck on back, he says, I'll put a bullet through your head. Get back. And fucking back off. And he looked down, he's just looking at me. Mad face and eyes and everything. If you don't get fucking back, I'll put a bullet through your head. MacArthur threatened Paddy Byrne. There may have been thousands of people in the park, 
But in this moment, they'd suddenly become ethereal. The world was oblivious to this terrifying tableau involving only three people, a victim, a witness, and a murderer wielding a lump hammer and what looked like a gun. And could you tell what age he was? I knew he was about 40. And he had a beard at that time? Yeah, a bit of a beard is right, that's yeah. right. And then she tried to get up. She, she got up as all I could see. was a big mass of red around the side of her face and down in her clothes and everything. Oh, the mass. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Murder Squad detective Tony Hickey. She was quite cool, apparently. He said afterwards, she said, is this for real? She panicked then in the back seat when he produced this um, lump hammer and the gardener approached him and uh, grappled with him and probably would have overpowered him. But uh, he produced this gun, which looked the real McCoy. Um, the gardener had to back off. She just had a gun on me there, I was near as I meant to you. And somehow I heard along there, I stepped into that train trying to get away. And of course, she had the keys left in the car. He just started the car real quick and away down there. That's the way it happened. The last I remember him seeing him. MacArthur started the car and drove it at high speed, in the wrong gear, along the grassy path. Paddy Byrne ran onto the main Phoenix Park Road and tried to flag down a car. Eventually, a park employee driving past spotted him and stopped. They alerted a security guard at the front gate of Deerfield and told him to ring the Gordie. Both men drove around for 20 minutes trying to spot the Renault 5, but it had disappeared. What was amazing is that of all the hundreds of people in the Phoenix Park, including a whole clatter of guards and detectives from headquarters in the Phoenix Park, a lot of them would be heading home at that particular Nobody saw anything except, except uh, Paddy Burton. So where did the attacker go in the car with a badly injured young woman in the back seat? MacArthur arrived at one of the exit gates, but because it was evening rush hour, there was a queue of cars in front of him. Here's Tony Hickey. Again, as sometimes happens in real life, fate or a quirk, usual occurrence, ambulance saw a car with a James's Hospital sticker on it, which she had for parking, and the ambulance men then saw her with the blood because he had tried to wipe off the blood off the car with a newspaper or something off the window. They saw a respectable-looking, good-looking, well-dressed man driving and a girl who was um, covered in blood in the back seat. She was actually calling for help, but they didn't know that. They um, made a wrong assumption and thought it was a medic 
trying to bring some injured lady to hospital. Gave him a blue light, escort through the evening traffic as far as St. James's Hospital. They drove in towards casualty. The driver, MacArthur, did a U-turn, drove along the South Circle Road, abandoned the car in the laneway, discarded his pullover, which was subsequently found in a Garda search, and Bertie Gargan's blood was on it. The beige combat-style jumper with bloodstains would later play a crucial role in the investigation. MacArthur had abandoned his car about two kilometres away from the Phoenix Park, on the South Circular Road, near a large tobacco factory. I think he discarded his hat, which was found as well, and he went into a travel agency on the South Circular Road, and uh, he inquired, was it a magic bus depot, which was an unusual... What was the magic bus? I, I think it was an idea that you, you got a bus ticket uh, for so much, and uh, you went on the bus, and you weren't told where you were going until you were well on the road. Of course, the man who came into the agency had no interest in the magic bus tour. He had just abandoned a car with a critically injured woman in the back seat. The murder squad detective, Tony Hickey, interviewed the woman who worked in the travel agency a few days after the attack. By this time, the unspeakable violence inflicted on Bridie Gargan had become a national story, dominating TV and newspaper headlines over the weekend. We went to the travel agents and we met the lady there and she was turned out to be a very good witness but believe it or not, she was so busy over the weekend, she hadn't read any papers, she hadn't watched television, and it was hard to believe when the perception is, you know, the whole country is consumed with something. Not everybody is. Some people are blissfully unaware of things that are going on. And she was able to give a very good description of this guy that came in. He was sweating, uh, not unusual because of the weather. He told her that he'd been jogging the Phoenix Park and that he forgot to bring his salt tablets and he drank a few glasses of water, and she washed the glass the minute he left, which was unfortunate because it may have left fingerprints. The impression she created, in, in my mind certainly, was that this guy was somebody that was used to maybe having servants, and he ordered her to do things, you know, and said, get me a taxi, I need to go to Dunlera. Then he was very ill at ease, to say the least, and a bit hyper. A bus pulled up at the bus stop, which was immediately outside. He jumped on the bus without saying thank you or goodbye or anything. And uh, he actually travelled on that bus to the terminus. It was clear that there was an element of panic and irrationality in his actions. Malcolm MacArthur wanted to go to Dunlira, which was on the south side of the city. But the bus he jumped on was going in the completely opposite direction, to the north side of the city. Its terminus was Finglas a working-class suburb on Dublin's north side. After getting off the bus in the unfamiliar surroundings of Finglas, MacArthur bought a packet of disposable razor blades in a nearby chemist's shop. He then entered a pub, the Fingal House pub. Its clientele could not have been more different than what the high-living MacArthur was used to. He stuck out like a sore thumb. Went into the Fingal House which wouldn't be a place he'd be normally, I'd say, associating in. And uh, he had a drink of water, I think, kind of um, barrier water or one of those things, tap water. But he went to the toilet and again um, he was seen um, hacking off, uh, shaving off his beard in a dry shave. And people took no great, the fellas took no great notice of it. Strange things happened in the Fingal house. And uh, he did call a taxi and he told the taxi man he wanted to go to Dunlera but he got off at Black Rock. Black Rock is another suburb on the south side of Dublin, 
closer to the city centre than Dunlira. Meanwhile, the badly injured and unconscious Bridie Gargan had been discovered in the back of her car. She was still alive, but in a critical condition. As MacArthur hewed off his beard without soap or water, she was being rushed to hospital. She never recovered consciousness. She would die from her injuries four days later. Her murder caused a national outcry. The murder of Bridie Gargan was shocking. Peter Murtha was security correspondent of the Irish Times in 1982. A young woman in the summer sunning herself in the Phoenix Park. A nurse, you know, there's an awful lot about her that evokes uh, emotions, emotional responses as to how tragic and how awful something like that is for her, for her family and for, for anyone who loved her. Brenda Power is a journalist and barrister. In 1982, she had just graduated in journalism and was cutting her teeth as a courts reporter with the Irish press newspaper. For her, one popular trope does just not stand up. She wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. She was in the right place. She was in in the place she was perfectly entitled to be. You know, she's doing what she's absolutely entitled to do. But the car, he wasn't going to take it off a man. Man would have put up a fight. A man would have challenged him. A woman was the easy target. But in 1982, 83, there there was no big outrage. You know, the thing is, women almost certainly did feel unsafe, did feel less safe. Did we talk about it? Did we discuss it? Did we identify that as a particular social issue at the time? No, we didn't. Because at the time, you accepted that you felt less safe. As a woman, you accepted that, that you know you were under a greater threat of physical violence from a man, even a strange man, even a man you never laid eyes on. Now that I think back on it, that heightened sense of don't be out on your own at night, was that always there? Did it predate it? I don't know. There was a vital piece of evidence left behind by Malcolm MacArthur in the Phoenix Park. It was a long, four-foot object, wrapped in polythene. When Gordy Price opened the polythene, they discovered it was a shovel. There already had been a finger mark developed on the polythene, which was wrapping the shovel in the Phoenix Park, which she had left at the scene beside a tree. That had rung alarm bells early on. Detectives generally came to the conclusion God, this guy, if he's going to kill people, it looks as if he's going to kill people for whatever reason, and he's going to bury them, which again was uh, completely impractical because the shovel he had wouldn't dig a grave in a fortnight in the, <laughs> mi- in the middle of a heat wave. How could you have dug a grave in the Phoenix Park, though, as well? I mean, he was, he was naive, but the pr- problem was that for you guys he was dangerous. It was kind of outside the rules of the game that you would normally encounter because criminals do things that normally make sense, not always. And here was this guy. And in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't imagine that somebody, in an attempt to acquire a car, which fellas on the street could hotwire, you know, in, in minutes. What, what, what age are you now, Paddy? I'm 84 now. Paddy Byrne was greatly shaken by his tussle with the killer. It did affect me, I suppose, for a good year, maybe a year and a half, thinking of it, you know, I couldn't get out anymore. But eventually, as time went in, it went in, that was it. Oh, sure, at the time, I thought, geez, that was... To change the history of Ireland. Bertie Ahern was chief whip of the government led by Charles Hawhey. He was also the TD, or Member of Parliament for Dublin Central, which included the Phoenix Park. It was an extraordinary turn of events because I think everybody believes that there were, you know, this was uh, some horrific murderer of the past and then all of a sudden there's a different kind of an individual. It, it, it was not the way people thought that the story was going to, to, to roll out. Malcolm MacArthur took a taxi to Black Rock on the south side of the city, 
and then the trail ran cold. What the Gordy knew at this stage was that he was tanned, had wavy dark hair and a cultured accent, a Lord of the Manor type in Tony Hickey's words. What they did not know was that the killer was about to strike again. After the weekend, all hell broke loose. I mean, it was an extraordinary story which people found it hard to believe and both in, in legal circles and um, in every other circles. And May 1982 into a, into a year that uh, uh, I, I, I can't forget, but I'd love to. <laughs> Bridie Gargan would have turned 67 this summer. Her family is very private and has shied away from media interviews. In a rare interview in 2012, her brother said the family thought of Bridie almost every day. This terrible murder set off a sequence of sensational events in what would become known as Gubu. Next time on Gubu, Malcolm MacArthur kills again, this time for a gun, and sets off the largest hunt for a murderer in the history of the Irish state. Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee. The editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE Archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library, and the Arachthus TV archive. For further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles, notes, photographs and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.